Okay, well, let's just start with our theme verse, which is one of very many verses in the Bible that talk about our hearts. Um, but this is the one that's been chosen for our ministry and where our name comes from. It's Proverbs 4.23. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And then let's move down to our purpose. The purpose of Wellspring is to, in, to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And we've talked about um, what it means to equip. We've talked about what it means to encourage. I wanted to focus a little bit today on talking about the purpose of the church. If you were going to just walk outside on the street and ask anyone, what is the purpose of the church? Can you imagine all the different answers you would get? And even if we asked everyone in this room to explain, what is the purpose of the church? We would get a lot of different answers. So I wanted to go to God's word and see what God says one of the purposes of the church is. Um, Ephesians 3.10 is one of those verses. There's a lot of instruction in the Bible about how church should be run and what church should do. Um, but this is one that states specifically what the purpose of the church is. Not, not the only one, but one of them. Ephesians 3.10 says, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So one of the purposes of the church is that God's wisdom is this manifold wisdom, meaning it's numerous, it's varied, there's a lot of wisdom about many things, and it's, it's a lot. That wisdom of God should be made known through us, and it says to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Those are angels. So it's not like we go through our day probably thinking about our influence on angels. <laughs> but how interesting that one of the purposes of the church is that we display God's wisdom to beings that we're not even aware of or thinking about often. Another purpose of the church is in 1 Timothy 3.15. You can turn there or you can listen, either way. Um, this is Paul writing to Timothy, and he says, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So another um, purpose, or you could say description of the church, is that it's the pillar and support of the truth. So Wellspring, our desire is that we would be equipped so that we can participate in these purposes of the church to proclaim the manifold wisdom of God and to uphold and support truth. And that's what um, these lessons are geared toward. That's what our homework is geared toward, that we could be a participant in those purposes. All right, let's move on to discipline one. This is about the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Now, every day when we come to God's word, we're going to have um, different things that we encounter. So not every day, but some days, we'll come to God's Word um, and maybe doing our reading plan that we're all working through, and we'll find something that applies specifically to what we're going through. And in those instances, I'm just so thankful. God, you know what's going on, and this was so encouraging. This was so helpful. Sometimes we'll come to God's Word, and it doesn't seem like it has anything to do with your daily life, aside from feeling conviction of sin, just seeing, oh, 
I, that's something I need to work on. That's something that's not pleasing to God in my life, and I want to put that off. And then other times we'll come to God's Word, and there's really nothing that we can even correlate to ourselves, to um, everyday life, aside from just that we just got to see what our God is like, and we get to know His character, and we get to worship Him. So I wanted to share with you some verses from Amos that I came across in the last couple of weeks that were encouraging to me because they just describe who God is. And um, I was saying at small group, you know, I read through Amos once a year. It's not like I'm in Amos a lot. So I happened to be there and happened to notice, oh, how cool. I love these two descriptions of who our God is that I don't read all the time. One of them was Amos 4, verse 13, and it says, For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts, who makes the dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. And then in verse, or chapter 5, verse 8, it says, He who made the Pleiades and Orion and changes deep darkness into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. Those two verses just give a description of God's power over nature. And um, he makes, he's made the constellations. He also creates wind, and he, I don't know if this is talking about rain when it talks about pouring out water or if it's a storm, um, but all those things are in his hand, and it's good for me to remember who God is as I come to his word, and, and I seek to be worshipful and to, be, and to pray. Um, those are just sweet passages. All right, discipline two. This is about the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. Um, as I've been going through my reading plan, I was thinking, you know, we could almost do our own little um, concordance of just like as we're going through the Bible, finding every passage that talks about discipline one, every passage that talks about discipline two or discipline three. So it's been neat as I was going through this week, just thinking about reviewing the disciplines, there was an example in Luke that I probably would not have thought of, but it's of Jesus, Luke 2, and it's about Jesus as a child or a tween, he was 12, um, and just his example of submission to his parents, it's a discipline 2 um, topic or issue. So Luke 2, and I'll just start in verse 49, it's when Jesus was lost, you know, for a few days, uh, Mary and Joseph couldn't find him, they go back, and then verse 48 says, when they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you, and he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, God and men. Anyway, that little section just made me think about, I mean, this is God, the creator of Joseph and Mary. He's also the sustainer. He's the one that keeps us alive. Um, and yet he is their, their child. And he put himself in subjection to his parents. If there was ever 
someone that you would say doesn't need to do that, it would be God in flesh. But he did that. He chose to put himself under his parents who are sinners. And um, what a great example for obviously children, um, but even for any of us, all of us who have um, authorities over us that we need to subject ourselves under. He entrusted himself to sinful parents, but really ultimately to his father. So what a good example. Um, Discipline three. This is about ministry. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church in every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Now, we got to hear the one another lesson, which is so great. Um, I came across a passage that doesn't actually have a one another in it, but it's an instruction of how to interact with people in the body of Christ. And it's in um, James, James 2, and it's talking about partiality or showing favor to specific people. So again, it's just neat to kind of like see all these little all these different passages that fall under this one topic of discipline one, discipline two, discipline three. We need the ones that have examples for us. We also need the ones that have specific instruction about how we're supposed to interact with people. So I'll just read James 2, 1 to 5. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, And there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? And then I'll just read verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So I was just thinking how good it is for us to have exposure. I don't know what plan you guys are all reading, but for me, the plan that I'm in has me in four different chapters in the Bible. But it's just so good to have exposure to all of God's word and to see these passages that we may not um, hear taught for many years um, or hear a sermon on for a while. Anyway, just to to be able to put them together, to know how God would have us interact with one another and interact in the home. So I'm going to close with, I'm not going to read something from the Valley of Vision, which is so weird, but I was listening to this song this week, and I wanted to share the lyrics with you guys. It's called Lord of Eternity by Fernando Ortega. I don't know if you guys know that song, but the lyrics are so encouraging. So I wanted to read that to you, and then Chris is going to come and teach us. Okay. Uh, It says, Blessed is the man who walks in your favor, who loves all your words and hides them like treasure. In the darkest place of his desperate heart, they are a light, a strong, sure light. Sometimes I call out your name, but I cannot find you. I look for your face, but you are not there. By my sorrows, Lord, lift me to you, lift me up to your side. Lord Lord of eternity, Father of mercy, look on my fainting soul. Keeper of all the stars, friend of the poorest heart, touch me and make me whole. If you are my defender, who is against me? No one can trouble or harm me if you are my strength. All I ask, all I desire, is to live in your house all my days. Lord of eternity, 
Father of mercy, look on my fainting soul. Keeper of all the stars, friend of the poorest heart, touch me and make me whole. All right. Well, we have Chris Evans coming to teach us today on a lesson that is kind of new. It's an old lesson that she's revised, right? Is that kind of, or, okay, reused, <laughs> I don't know. So um, this is going to be sort of a foundational lesson for discipline too, and I know it's going to be good. I don't know if those of you that are new may not know Chris and may have not, maybe have not heard her teach yet, but you're going to be blessed today. I can already tell you that. Um, Chris has been at our church for over 12 years. I don't know how long you've been here, but it's been longer since than our family has been here. Is it close to 12? Or 13, maybe? So, okay. So she's been here a long time, and she's um, a foundational part of Wellspring. So we're just so thankful to have you, Chris. And she's worked hard on this lesson, and I know you guys will enjoy it. Good morning. It is a privilege to be here this morning. Excited to see new faces. I am uh, have always been a part of the midweek wellspring. I'm, uh, only get to come in here maybe once or twice a year, so I'm, I'm glad to be here this morning. Well, let's go ahead and pray. This over here, and uh, then we'll get started. Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to be able to be together this morning, to open up your word together and to hear from you. Father, our our hearts need you. We need to see you for who you are. We need to see your instructions for how you desire for us to live, how you desire for us to care for our hearts, to care for one another, and specifically this morning, to see how you desire for us to care for those in our homes. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts would be ripe to hear your word, that we would be disciplined to listen carefully to your word being taught. And, Father, that we would listen in a way um, that would impact our hearts to obey. Father, to just be hearers of your word and not doers will not benefit us. And so we pray for your help, that we will listen in a way that as we then think about your word throughout the rest of the day, throughout the week, throughout the next months, throughout our lives, Father, that uh, we will be impacted in such a way that we will want to live out these truths in a way that just magnify you, that glorify you. And so thank you for this time together. We pray in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, this morning we're going to be focusing on discipline two. And as we do that, we're going to see how closely it is tied to discipline one, how inseparable they are in God's mind. We know that we must be careful to watch over and lead our hearts in such a way that when we interact with God's word, when we read it, when we pray, that it will direct the way that we live and it will impact, it will affect the way that we impact those in our homes with God's word. As uh, our time in God's word overflows into those in our households. Our instruction to them will be purposeful instruction with love and care and commitment and consistency. 
and that's what our lesson this morning is all about. We're going to be talking about discipline to the home, building our home with God's word. We find this idea of building our home in Proverbs 14.1, and you have that verse written out in your outline. It says, the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. Now, we're going to have an entire lesson um, later on in the year on that verse. Our understanding of what it means to be wise women who build our home is that important. But for today, I want us to think about how we are to use God's word to build our homes. So homes are designed to be a place of protection, of fellowship, of rest. They, um, it is to be a place of provision and nurture. Proverbs 14 tells us that if we are wise women, we will build this kind of a home. And we all know that that doesn't just happen, right? It takes effort. Think about Proverbs 18.9 with me, and that also is written out in your outline. It says, the one who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. So this slackness of the home that Proverbs 14.1 speaks of might come about by the slackness or the carelessness of the foolish woman. The result is that her home is torn down. The things that the home is supposed to provide for are not there. It won't be a place of protection, of nurture, of rest to those who live there. There won't be the right kind of foundation that is suitable for instruction. That is certainly not what God has intended for our home. And we're gonna see that in the lesson this morning. He places a high importance on our home, on our household relationships. Now, I know that we are all in different seasons of life as I look around the room this morning. So whether you have small children at home, whether you are living in your parents' home, whether you're empty nesters, whether you have roommates or live alone, we must be concerned about our household relationships. So today we're going to focus on what it looks like to be women who build our homes with God's word. And to do that, we're going to look at Deuteronomy 6. So if you would turn with me there, we're going to spend a good portion of the morning there. Now, since we are looking at Deuteronomy, part of the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, and by the way, Mosaic just means that it came through Moses. I, I think it's going to be really helpful for us to take a few minutes to talk about how we as believers are to view the Old Testament. So the first thing that we need to understand is that this was God's covenant with Israel, with that particular nation. This isn't the covenant that God made with the church, though there are some aspects of it that Jesus has brought forward for us that continue into the New Testament, and we're going to identify some of those as we um, go along this morning. But we'll also see that there are aspects of it that have not been brought forward, but was only God's covenant with Israel. And then the second thing that I think is really important for us to understand when we look at the Mosaic Covenant and that is that it was not a means of salvation or of obtaining a righteous standing with God through obedience. Now, how do we know that? Well, all the way back in Genesis, God made it clear in chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was declared righteous on the basis of his faith. Galatians 2.16 tells us 
that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And Romans 3 says the same thing, and you have those references in your outline. The message of the Bible is that the righteous will live by faith. Faith gains God's approval, not our works. That was true in the Old Testament, just as it is true now. Hebrews 11, I'm sure many of you are familiar with, is known as the Hall of Faith, and it describes the faith of many Old Testament saints. Verse 2 tells us, by faith, men of old gained approval. So they were declared righteous on the basis of faith. So righteousness before God for Israel was by faith. Now, not all had faith, but faith was the only means of salvation for them, just as it is for us. So Mosaic law, what we're going to see in Deuteronomy 6 in particular, was not a means of salvation. Rather, it was a covenant that God made with this particular nation of Israel that taught them how to live, how to live in the land that he promised them, how to live with him, how to live with each other, how to live as his people in such a way that would put God on display to the nations around them. So obedience to God was to be evidence of their faith. And that's not inconsistent with God's grace extending a righteousness of faith alone. He does the same thing for us in the church. By grace, we have been saved through faith. Okay? Ephesians 2.18 tells us that. And he tells us how to live as recipients of his grace. He has instructions for us that are for our good and for his glory. So Deuteronomy contains instructions for Israel. However, there are principles here that will be helpful for us as we seek to be women who build our homes with God's word. So as we go through Deuteronomy 6, we're going to look at New Testament passages that parallel with the principles that we find. So let's go ahead and read the passage in Deuteronomy. And by the way, Deuteronomy means the law. So this is the second giving of the law as they are about to enter into the promised land. And remember, they're going without Moses. Okay, Moses is not going to be accompanying them. So he's preparing them to go into the land. Let's start in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then there are more warnings and instructions for Israel. But we're going to drop down to verse 20. When your son asks you in a time to come, 
saying, what do these testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. So in this passage, we see a beautiful picture of God's intention for the home. It was to be a place where God's word was taught and lived out and where love for God was displayed. So let's go ahead and, and go back and uh, we're going to go back again through the passage and we're going to focus on some of the details. Let me read again verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. And then the next phrase begins with that. It's answering the question of why. Why am I teaching you these commandments? It is so that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. So God commanded me, Moses is saying, God commanded me to teach you so you will obey. Now listen to why their obedience was so important. Verse 2, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. So their obedience was to cultivate a reverent fear of God in both their own hearts, he said, so that you might fear the Lord, and in the hearts of their children and their grandchildren. So do you see the chain in these verses? Moses said, I'll teach you so you'll obey, so you, so you and your children will fear God and obey him, and that their children will fear God. And obey. So there's a principle here that we're going to see paralleled in the New Testament. You have this in your outline. Our obedience to God's word influences others toward God in his word. Now think about that. Your obedience to God's word influences others toward God in his word. And it starts with those in our home. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 1. And we'll see that this principle is illustrated in the life of Timothy. The second Timothy is a letter written by Paul to Timothy. Timothy was a pastor and he was Paul's son in the faith. Verse five says, for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am sure that it is in you as well. So Timothy had the blessing of a believing mother and grandmother. They had a sincere faith. It was a faith that was evident by how they lived. In addition, the apostle Paul was a father to Timothy in the faith, and Paul instructed him as well. We see that in chapter 3, verse 10. <clears throat> now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, 
perseverance, and so on. Do you see the influence that Paul had on his spiritual son? Paul became an example to Timothy. And then later in the chapter, Paul writes this in verse 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Now that pronoun whom is plural. So we know that Paul taught him, but look at what comes next. It points to others who uh, taught Timothy. Look, look, Look at verse 15. It says in that from childhood, literally from infancy, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. He's saying, Timothy, you know who taught you. Now certainly Paul did, but Paul is also referring to Timothy's faithful mother and grandmother. From the time Timothy was born, these women had been living out their faith and teaching the word to Timothy. It's a wonderful example of our first principle that our obedience to God's word influences others toward God and his word. And again, that begins in our own household. So what an encouragement we find in these verses. Moms, grandmothers, why do we teach children God's word? It is because it is able to give them the wisdom that leads to salvation. That's why we're faithful to Next Generation Ministries all the way from when they're teeny, teeny, tiny, right? No child is too young to be taught the Word of God. So ladies, we must be faithful in our homes with God's Word. From what we know in Scripture, Timothy didn't have a believing father, but that didn't keep his mother and his grandmother from teaching him the Word. So if we're going to be women who build our homes, we must first be women who obey God's Word, who have a growing reverence for God, and who influence others in our household toward reverent fear and obedience to God as well. So let's just stop and think. Who can you influence by your obedience and reverent fear of God? We saw that it will be our children and our grandchildren, but maybe for you, it's your parents. Your obedience has an influence on them. It influences your siblings, your husband, your roommate, or other family members. So again, we need to be faithful with those in our household, to those who live there and to those who who we welcome in. The wise woman is the woman who knows this and builds up her home by pursuing obedience diligently. She's diligent to repent of her disobedience and to live in the shadow of the cross, where she is reminded that Christ died to save her, to free her from her sin, to forgive her of her sin, and to make her a slave to righteousness. She is earnest to influence those in her household toward a reverent fear and obedience to God. The foolish woman? Well, we saw in Proverbs 18, 9, That woman is slack about her obedience, careless, unconcerned with the influence that she will be having on others in her home. And the result is that she is tearing down her home with her own hands. 
All right, let's go back to Deuteronomy 6 and we'll look at the next principle. Let's go ahead and look at verse 3. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it. So Moses is telling Israel how seriously they needed to take obedience, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, had, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now again, this promise is made to Israel. Okay, we haven't been promised physical land flowing with milk and honey. God has not promised us that we would multiply greatly. So these are some aspects of God's covenant with Israel that Christ did not carry over into the church. They are unique to Israel. However, there is a principle that does carry over into the New Testament. And that is, and again, this is on your outline, that obedience to God's word is beneficial to those who obey. If you're a parent, if you, sorry, if you're a parent, or if you had Christian parents, Ephesians 6, 1 is probably very familiar to you. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So there are blessings promised for obedience. We are to teach our children to obey so that it may be well with them. Now, sometimes I think we just need to be reminded of this. We don't need to be apologetic for lovingly and graciously urging those in our home to obey God's word. When it comes to our children, we must train them to obey. And we know that obedience doesn't save anyone. However, there are many benefits to obeying, both for the believer and the unbeliever. And we'll see some of those as we get to the end of the chapter. Now, this does not mean that our circumstances will always go the way that we want them to go, right? We all know that. But believers do benefit from obedience because God uses it for our good and his glory. He uses it to conform us into the image of Christ. He uses it to purify us, to refine us, and to sanctify us. Obedience develops trust, perseverance, and maturity. It causes us to be equipped to comfort others. It gives us peace. And obedience um, benefits unbelievers as well. You'll see a quote from John Piper in your outline, and he's talking about obedience of children who are not saved. He writes, Gracious parenting leads children from external compliance to joyful willingness. Children need to obey before they can process obedience through faith. When faith comes, the obedience which they have learned from fear and reward and respect will become the natural expression of faith. Not to require obedience before faith is folly. It is not loving in the long run. It cuts deep furrows of disobedient habits that faith must then not infuse, but overcome. I was one who was not raised in a Christian family and was not taught the importance of obedience. I can tell you that that is true. So we must teach our children to obey. And as we do it, we connect it to the gospel. 
helping our children to see that they too are sinners and that their only hope is in our, our wonderful Savior. The wise woman understands the value of obeying God's word, starting with herself and the benefit it has to those who obey for both the believer and the unbeliever. Okay, let's look at our next principle. We're back in Deuteronomy 6, and let's pick up in verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So this verse begins with the word hear. It's the Hebrew word shema, and it's a command. It's an imperative. He's saying, Israel, hear this. And the idea of hearing is not simply the hearing of words. This is a hear with the intent to obey. It includes the intent to hear it, to live under it, and to order your life around who God is and what he says. So when we see hero Israel, it means understand this, embrace this, and submit to this. And this hearing with the intent to obey is in light of who God is. Let's look again at verse 4. It says, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Now remember, this is a nation that has come out of idolatry in Egypt, and they're headed into a land that is filled with idolatry. So they needed to be absolutely convinced that Yahweh, which is the word for Lord used here, is our God. The false gods of the Canaanites were unpredictable, unstable gods, but this God is one. He's not one way at one time and another way at another time. He is not temperamental. He is united in his being, and he is their unique God, the one and only God, completely distinct from man-made gods. Verse 5 says, You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you shall be on your heart. Now, does that remind you of anything? It ought to remind us of discipline one, right? God's word leading our hearts. God's design is that his words are to be on our hearts woven into the fabric of our inner man, ordering our steps, and it is all founded on who God is. And it's founded on his call on us to love him completely with all our heart. Now when it refers to heart, soul, and might, it's not referring to three different parts of us, but rather it's a way to underscore the totality of who we are. So our next principle is that love for God is expressed through loving and obeying his word. Now, when you think about the Old Covenant and Mosaic Law, do you think first about love for God? I might think first about the Ten Commandments or the bloody sacrifices that were required. But when we read this, we realize that what God thought of was love for him. Yahweh's people, Israel, were not guilty before him first and foremost because they broke dietary laws or social laws or sacrificial laws or even because they didn't obey the Ten Commandments. 
They were guilty before the Lord first and foremost because they did not love him with an all-consuming love. And because they did not love him, they were unconcerned with, or at best were very slow to obey the dietary and social and sacrificial laws and even the Ten Commandments. But in God's mind, love was always the issue. This is true in the New Testament as well. The cure for our disobedience must always begin by addressing our love for God. How can we improve on our obedience to God without fueling our love for Him? Part of battling our sin and repenting of sin is reminding ourselves of God's love for us because that's what fuels our love for Him. Now, the closest covenant idea to this experience is probably the covenant of marriage. The marriage covenant is full of vows that the two parties pledge to keep. So the minister asks, will you? And the bride says, and the groom says, I will. Now, what if we witnessed that covenant being made and we thought, well, that's just a bunch of do's and don'ts. That's just, that's just a bunch of rules. We wouldn't think of it that way, would we? I haven't been to a wedding and thought of that because we know that it's more than that. Why do the bride and the groom make vows to each other? It is because of their love and commitment in their relationship. Their love causes them to make and to keep these vows. So in any covenant relationship like marriage, there must be rules and terms. But the primary emphasis of their obedience to these laws is love. And so it is with God. So we see in this principle that love for God is expressed through loving and obeying his word. This was also expressed by Jesus. He said in John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who, what? Loves me. So we see Jesus insisted on the same devotion that Israel had been commanded to give to God. Okay, so in verse 5 of Deuteronomy 6, we saw that God said, You shall love me with all your heart, and these words must be on your heart. The love for God must always move the believer to God's word. If we love Jesus it will move us toward his word. And that's important in our household. If those in our homes are to know that we love God, they must see that we love him through our obedience to his word. And we must use God's word in a loving way to those in our households. Any knowledge we have of God's word must never be communicated in a way that exalts us, but rather in a way that loves others and exalts God. That is one way that the wise woman builds up her home. Loving God and obeying his word go hand in hand. Now, what might the foolish woman do? Well, if we say that we love God, but there is no obvious love for his word in our lives, we may tear down our homes by cultivating an indifference to his word. If we say we love God, but we are unconcerned with obedience, 
we may tear down our homes by building an indifference toward sin. If we are concerned with obedience, but we fail to communicate love for God and his word, we may tear down our homes with self-righteousness. Love for God is expressed through loving and obeying his word. Now, let me just pause and say, I know that we are all at different places in our walks with the Lord. None of us has a perfect understanding of the Bible. So wherever we are in our understanding, we need to keep growing. We need to keep learning. We need to keep hiding God's word in our heart. We need to persevere in discipline one. Now, if you have a house full of people, maybe you have a house full of little ones, then it will require you to be creative. I've walked through a few seasons of life and I know how hard it can be in some of them to be faithful and consistent in God's word. So if this is a season that you're in, let me just encourage you, do what you can. You can do something as simple as no one gets down from the breakfast table until we've read a verse together. And then you have a verse that you can meditate on all throughout your day. I spent many years in, in God's word while sitting on the floor in the hallway of our home while my children played in their rooms. They knew they were not allowed to come out. And then as they got a little bit older and they were okay to be on their own for a little bit, I had something that I hung on the door on the outside of the doorknob of my bedroom and that meant I was in God's word and they knew not to come in. So for you, maybe it means putting your phone on airplane setting until you've been in God's word, making it a priority and remembering that even a little bit of God's word is powerful and it's useful to your own heart and to shepherding others and influencing others in your home. And that brings us um, to number four. God's design is for his word to saturate our lives, our homes, and our relationships. And do you know, I did turn that air down a bit and I see people doing this. So if you need to turn it back up, sorry, I was getting really warm. So. All right, let's uh, go back to Deuteronomy and pick up in verse seven. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. So verse seven begins with the command to teach them diligently. And you'll see two quotes in your outline to help explain that. It means to frequently repeat these things to them. Try all ways of instilling them into their minds and making them pierce into their hearts as in sharpening a knife. It is first turned on one side and then on that. So the idea is to do it diligently in the sense that you're doing it over and over again, like sharpening the knife on a stone over and over again. And then the second quote you have there is the image 
<clears throat> is that of an engraver of a monu excuse me, the engraver of a monument who takes hammer and chisel in hand and with painstaking care etches a text into the face of a solid slab of granite. The sheer labor of such a task is daunting indeed, but once done, the message is there to stay. So the idea here is that it is laborious, okay? You cannot stop. Israel was to do this over and over again. And these instructions for Israel paint such an accurate picture for us as well. First, in shepherding our own hearts, we always have to start there, right? And we do it continually because our hearts don't just hear truth one time and then we, we respond to it in perfect submission and obedience forever, right? I don't think there's anyone in here that would say that. No, we need these truths poured into our hearts and taught to our hearts over and over again. In order for those truths to penetrate and to take root and to go deep, just as we've seen described here. And then we are to teach them diligently. So this imprinting of God's word begins with our own hearts and it extends to those in our household. So we shouldn't be timid about reminding ourselves and those in our household about the precious truths that we find in God's word. It's what we all need and we need it over and over again. So the next thing we see in verse seven is that this diligent teaching was to take place when you sit and when you walk. So this shows it that this diligent teaching needs to take place beyond things like family devotions alone. Although things like family devotions are a very helpful part of building our home with God's word. But this is talking about the activities all throughout the day. Israel was upon any occasion within the home and outside the home to be impressing the word of God on those who were in their homes. When you're sitting, so that means during activities, oh, and during activities like when you are walking. So it's a, a, a purposeful sitting down instructing and it's all throughout the day. And then it continues when you lie down and when you rise up. So from beginning to end, their days were to be characterized by the impressing of the word of God upon the hearts and minds of those in their home. In other words, their first and foremost responsibility was to see that their household understood the word of God. And for the Israelite, it was to go even further still. Verse 8 says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. So the Israelites obeyed this by placing written commands in leather pouches and then literally binding them on their hands and on the foreheads with leather straps. It was to, ser it was to ser um, serve for them as a reminder of God's word, that it was to influence everything that they thought and everything that they did. It was to be a constant reminder of God's word and how it was to influence their household. One commentator express, expresses the heart behind this command this way. He says the commandments were to be sovereign over individual Israelites, and they were to serve as constant, 
constraints, guides on their hands, it is mental checks upon their thinking. The purpose of using such symbolism was to connect God's law with the everyday routine matters of life. Nothing was to be considered outside of the scope of his authority. Verse 9 continues, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this likewise was the Jewish practice of writing passages of scripture on small pieces of parchment, and then they were rolled up and they were inserted in cases, and they were attached to, the, to doors and to doorposts of their homes. So when they were leaving their house, the last thing they would see was God's word. And as they went through the gate, the last thing they would see before they left their property and went out to interact with other people was God's word. And at the end of the day, when they came back home and they went through their gates and they went through their door, they once again saw God's word. God's intent in all of this was that the household would be saturated with the word of God. That was God's intent for Israel. They were to be so saturated with the word of God that there was not a time in their lives, there was not even a place in their home, not an action, not a thought, which was not to be informed by the word of God. So all of the time, everywhere, every thought, every deed, it was, to, it was what they were to teach, it was what they were to talk about. So... How about us? Clearly, we are not to take these commands literally. Nowhere are we instructed in the New Testament to physically bind God's word on our hands or on our foreheads. We aren't commanded to write them out and put them on doors and gates. But there is a principle that we see, and that is that God's design is for his word to saturate our lives, our homes, and our relationships. We see that with parents and children. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. You probably know it. It says uh, fathers, and by the way, MacArthur explains that word father was, um, could be used for parents in general. So it says fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now to bring them up, means to nourish to maturity and it's in the present tense which means that they were to keep on nourishing it's ongoing and it's with a goal in mind maturity parents we aren't raising children we're raising adults and it's done by nourishing them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul describes how rich God's word is. It's not just something to be brought up when correction is needed. I don't think any of us want just that in our homes. And it's not only with the parent-child relationship. It says that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. It's beneficial, it's useful. God's word in our heart bears good fruit, first in our own hearts to cultivate love and obedience for God, and then in the lives of those around us, to be used with care and love and grace and to spur on the love and obedience of those in our family and in our church. 
All right, turn to Colossians 3.1. It describes the overflow of God's word from our hearts into the lives of others in this way. It begins by saying, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom. So we get that wisdom when the word of Christ richly dwells within us. Teaching or explaining and admonishing, which could mean warning or encouraging one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So God's word is going to overflow in many different ways when it is dwelling richly within us. It gives us wisdom to explain and to warn and to encourage, and it will produce thankfulness in us. And it's also important to remember that the word of God is a means of God for bringing about salvation. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's what we saw in Timothy's life, right? From childhood, he had known the sacred writings which were able to give the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So this principle continues from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so if we are to be wise women who build our homes, we will seek not to, not to be satisfied with just Bible verses framed and hanging on our walls, but we will labor to continue to impress God's word, both on our own hearts and on the hearts of those precious lives that come into our homes and those particularly that live there. And we know that it must be ongoing. We can't be surprised when a truth or, ins or an instruction doesn't stick the first time we say it. Sometimes we are, but we shouldn't be, right? That's not what God's word says, is it? The picture that God gave Israel was that of sharpening a knife, stroke after stroke after stroke, or the engraving of granite. Thousands of tiny blows are required to permanently etch the message onto the stone. Think about we know, what we know about our own hearts and our own ongoing need for God's word, our own ongoing need to preach the gospel to our hearts over and over again. And so we must be wise women who do not grow weary in nourishing and teaching and encouraging and correcting with the word of God in our homes. And let's not forget the warning we will be tearing down our homes if we foolishly allow ourselves to be content with teaching that we've had in the past and we don't continue to actively impress God's word on our own hearts as well as the hearts of those in our homes. We can't assume that our children or our grandchildren or others in our family understand just because we've said it. Again, remember Israel God's truth needed to be heard and seen and remembered all the time. So, ladies, pour yourselves out to make these truths um, clear in your homes in every way possible, taking advantage of every opportunity you have. Okay, let's go back to Deuteronomy 6 and look at the next principle. 
homes filled with love and obedience toward God and his word will be filled with opportunities for declaring the greatness of God and his gospel. So God has been talking to people who have access to salvation by faith. Okay, they're looking forward to Christ. They're believing promises that were made to them. And he's been telling them to live as people who love and fear God. And now look at verse 10. He warns them. Verse, yeah. Um, he says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So he's saying, beware, don't forget God. When you go into the land and everything is going well, watch yourself. And it reminds them to fear only Yahweh and to worship him, to not follow after other gods and to not test God with grumbling and complaining against him, but to diligently keep his commandments. And then in verse 20, he says, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean, which the Lord our God commanded you? Now, remember, these are children who have seen their parents love God, obey God, and fear God and diligently taught God's word in their homes. They've heard their parents talk about God from morning to night, and they've seen the commandments written on doorposts and gates, strapped to hands and foreheads, so that God's word would be guiding all that they thought and did. These sons are gonna be asking their fathers a question. What does it mean? Why do we do these? And verse 21 tells us how they were to answer this question. Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe these statutes, all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. And as believers, we in the church, in the New Testament, teach God's commands so that we can declare that the Lord has delivered us from the slavery of sin. We teach those in our household that we obey God because he is our great deliverer and he has a right to rule in our lives. His commandments are for our good. A life of love and obedience toward God which is saturated with the word of God, both in our own hearts and in our homes, will give us opportunities to proclaim the greatness of our God and his salvation. So the picture we get here is not merely of endless lecturing to our kids. I don't think, again, I don't think any of us want for our homes to be filled with only instruction. If our communication is limited to that, 
it will ultimately tear down the relationships in our homes. Young children do need to be taught to obey. Even when they don't understand it, they need to be taught to obey without whining, without challenge. However, as they grow, we want them to learn wisdom as well as obedience. Training children to obey paves the way for teaching how God's commands point to his character and his word and his salvation. We want to be wise women who build our homes through rich dialogue about how awesome God is. So when you're out on a walk with your children, you stop and you wonder at God's creation. When your child loses their first tooth, you talk about how amazing God is and the way he created their bodies. You cultivate a wonder for God in the details of life. You nurture the sense of who God is and of his great power so that when they hear that, they, that there is a way for them to be reconciled to this amazing God, when you are able to share the gospel with them, they will understand what good news it is, and it will pave the way for rich gospel opportunities. So again, let me encourage you, be faithful in the opportunities that you have throughout your day. Take advantage of them to point them to our amazing God. A God-saturated home will be marveling at him in every part of life. And that can begin at such a young, tender age. Okay, so we've walked through Deuteronomy 6, and then we looked forward to the New Testament to see how these principles have been carried forward for our understanding the relationship between God's Word and our hearts and our homes. And there really is so much that we have already seen to spur us on in our pursuit of God in His Word and our pursuit of building our home with God's word. But before I finish, I, I want us to just very quickly look at one last principle. And that is that God's word is overflowing with treasures for building our homes on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. So a lot of the other principles that we've looked at this morning talk about instruction. And we want to be diligent with that, right? We must be faithful in that. But we also want to remember that first and foremost, God's word is a book about God himself. It is, uh, it is by God and it reveals God. And as such, it supplies abundantly for us to draw near to him and for supplying everything that we need for life and godliness, and everything for those in our household, what they need for life and godliness. So you're going to have a time over um, the next couple weeks in your homework to once again walk through Psalm 19. It seems like it's kind of, we've done that often throughout the year, and I love looking at it in different ways. But this time you're going to read through it, and you're going to think about ways that you can use Psalm 19 to build up your home with God's word. Being wise women who build our home with God's word doesn't just happen by accident, does it? It takes planning and it takes commitment. 
We may find that we are doing well with this and then something comes along and changes either our schedules or seasons of life or any number of things may change. And we may find that our biblical influence has taken a few steps back. And maybe it needs to be shored up again, to be done intentionally and thoughtfully and in many different ways, not just for correction, but for refreshment and encouragement and joy and for wisdom, giving those in our households the greatest treasure because the word of God will reveal God himself to them. So if this is a hard season for you, I look around and there are some with little ones at home, be encouraged. That season will change. So persevere. And if this is an easy season for you, be thankful for that. But let, re let me remind you, that it also may change. But our hearts for God's word must never change. So let's be faithful, faithful in our homes, so that we are women who build up God's word in our home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I have just thought often, as you know throughout this week, what it would have been like to build my home to train our children without your word father it just it would not have uh, it would not have gone well first of all and it would not have been fruitful and it just has caused me to realize just what an amazing gift we have in your word so, Father, I pray that we will grow in our diligence, our commitment, our creativity in how we use your word, your precious word that you have given to us to build up our homes, to train our children, to remind our roommates, those who come into our homes, to be faithful, to care for them with your word. Father, I pray that whatever season of life we are in, Father, that we will not grow weary, that we will not become discouraged, but that we will be faithful and see what a privilege it is that we have your word, first of all, to shepherd our own hearts and then to care and to love and to nurture those that are in our homes and to those who come into it. So, Father, we acknowledge in this, as in everything in life, how much we need your help. So, Father, would you indeed help us, help us to be faithful to those precious lives that live in our homes, that those who come in, so that you will be honored and glorified. And we pray this again in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.